Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. The great missionary explorer David Livingstone served in Africa from 1840 until his death in 1873. God used him in Central Africa. He was anxious to travel into areas of Central Africa that had not been reached with the gospel. And so one time he came up, there was an occasion, he came up to uh, a new territory, and the custom was that when he would come to the area, the tribal chief, because this was governed by a tribal chief or their king, would come out to meet him. And there would be an exchange. He would lay out whatever he had with him, and the chief would choose what he wanted to take. And then the chief, in turn would give him a present of his own decision. So in this case, Livingston laid out basically everything he had with him. He had his clothes. He laid them out on the ground, his clothes, his books, his watch, and his goat. He he had a goat with him because he had terrible digestive problems and he couldn't drink the local water so he had a goat with him so he could drink the goat's milk and he was thinking I hope he doesn't take the goat guess what the chief took (laughs) the goat (laughs) the chief took the goat and in return he gave him this kind of crooked stick that looked like a walking stick and David Livingston was a man of God, but he was, he was bothered by that. He was disappointed in that, and he was griping and complaining to God. I gave up my goat, and I get a stick in return. And then one of the locals described to him the significance of that stick. That was actually the king's scepter. And he said, the king has honored you greatly. Anywhere and everywhere you go, you will be welcome in any village with that scepter. It was the case that so often we focus on what we don't have and we don't appreciate what we really do have. And what... David Livingston uh, learned in the late 1800s is similar to what the prophet Malachi wanted the people to learn some 2,300 years earlier. So I invite your attention there today. We're going to look at the book of Malachi. It is the last of the Old Testament. Well, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last of the prophets and the last of these collection of 12 that we've been looking at for the last 12 weeks now in this series, Minor Prophets, Major Impact. And here is the the, the, the setting uh, 
like other Old Testament prophets, Malachi verbally gave messages from God to the people. And in this book, there's a collection of six of these speeches. I'm, I'm calling them speeches. They technically were disputations. It's like God will say something and the people will dispute it and God will answer back and it kind of, it's kind of a back and forth. And there's six of them here. Now, we don't know, for instance, if this was the full extent of Malachi's ministry. This may have been the only six major things he said, or he may have said hundreds of things. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, has preserved these six for us. In the Bible, we have them today so that all people of all times, including us today, can still hear God's word. Now, Malachi was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah. Here's a visual of uh, kind of the basic timeline. That there was the exile in Babylon because of their sin and their wickedness and their wrong. They had been taken off. The Babylonians came in and they had been taken off into exile. But then they returned to Jerusalem and, of course, Jerusalem was destroyed, the city was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And so there, some of the prophets spoke uh, about rebuilding the temple, the last two that we covered, for instance, uh, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, Malachi is written after the temple has been rebuilt. The, the problem that Malachi saw in his day is that the exile did not fundamentally change their hearts. And that was unfortunate. You would have thought that after they had been taken away for 70 years, because of their sin and because of their wrong, the very fact that God was gracious to them and allowing them to come back, would they would have said, oh, we need to follow God completely and wholeheartedly. But that wasn't the case. You read Malachi and you see all kind of things going on. These six speeches are here and they're on your outline sheet, which if you didn't get to pick one up, they're on the little table there in the back. You can grab that. There are six speeches. The first one is to remember God's covenant. The second one, to worship God properly. Number three, be faithful to your covenants, especially marriage. Four, be faithful by practicing justice. Five, be faithful by giving tithes and offerings to God. And six, fear and honor God's name. And in many ways, the first one, it's a short one. The first one links all of them together. Because if they will understand how much God loved them, then that would set the stage for a life of obedience and a life of worship. And so it starts out that way. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. Now, here's what we're going to do. We don't have time to cover all six of these. There's, there's no way to do anything other than mention them. So I've chosen two. I'm going to, I'm going to mention all six and I'll read a verse or two about them just so you can get a sweep of the feel of the book. But we're, we're going to hone our thoughts in on two. 
And you say, Jerry, how did you, how did you choose which two to focus on? Well, I've got this really nice pair of dice in my office that's got six numbers on it. And I just said, Lord, oh Lord, which ones? And I rolled and a number came up. And then I rolled again and another number came up. How many of you believe that? Good. I'm glad you, oh no, I'm joking. Here's the way I chose the two to focus on. Four of these six talk about themes that we have covered over and over again in the minor prophets. There are two of these that hone in on areas that we really haven't talked about yet. So I thought that would be a good way to finish this series on the minor prophet. Really, really honing in on the two areas that that we haven't talked about so far. Well, let's, let's go through them now. The first one is remember God's covenant love. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, you have to understand the love-hate words here. This is figurative language. The one, this is, this is a word of election. This is a word of choosing. God loved Jacob in the sense that he chose Jacob to be the one that whom he, through whom he would work. And so the book starts out, remember God's covenant love. The second speech is worship God properly. Worship God properly. You know, they, they worshiped with sacrifices. They brought animals in and they were supposed to bring in Animals without blemish. They were supposed to bring in the best that they could to God. But instead of bringing in the best, they it seems like many of them were just trying to get by with whatever they could do and give the worst. Thought, oh, well, oh, it's just for God. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, Malachi says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Worship is very, very serious because God is so high and holy and sovereign, and it just won't do to give God leftovers. God is a covenant God. He enters into a relationship with people, And he establishes covenant relationships between people as well. A a covenant is essentially a a promise uh, relationship between two parties. Two parties enter into a promise with each other. And speech number three addresses that. It's be faithful to your covenants, especially marriage. Now, God's people of that day were not demonstrating loyalty to each other in general in their relationships, and they were also not demonstrating loyalty in their individual nuclear families. And so the prophet challenges them on that. And in this speech, there are three reasons why people should honor their covenant promises. We're going to, we're going to park here for a little bit. We haven't talked about marriage and what God, how God sees marriage. But this speech gives three reasons 
why we should keep our covenant promises. And here's the first one. Unfaithfulness hinders the unity and health of the spiritual family. Now think about it. When you are unfaithful to another individual that's in God's family, that unfaithfulness hinders the health of the whole spiritual family. It's not just that one person or you, but it it, it hinders the whole spiritual family. Look at uh, verse 10. Do we not have, this is chapter 2, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? So why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So God creates a people. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. And he makes those people one. And he asks those people for loyalty to him. He unites those people together. It's not just a collection of a lot of different individuals, like we're all just individual Christians and followers of God. But no, we are one spiritual family together with one creator and one father, and he, Malachi asked, why would you break this unity by breaking faith with each other? And when you do that, you desecrate the covenant. Now, what profanes the covenant? We'll start in verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has de- desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. God gave them a sanctuary to worship in and a place and a way to worship. And yet some of God's people were choosing to go marry other women who followed other religions and would not follow God. And that was desecrating to the sanctuary. Now, God told the Israelites, don't intermarry with foreign pagan nations. This was not because of ethnic bias or racial bias or, or, or national bias, but it was because it would compromise the true faith for a follower of God to marry a pagan who would not follow God. No sleeping with the enemy, in other words. So their lifestyle choices were not honoring God. Look at verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Now, the pagan belief in that day was that, you know, people brought things to offer to the gods. And the pagan belief was uh, those gods would never turn anybody down, no matter how they were living. Because if they turned somebody down, they turned offerings that they brought down, it would hurt them. But that... God cannot be bribed. The true God demands a certain lifestyle and and enacted it for people and said, this is the way I want you to worship. Verse 13 gets us into the second reason um, out of the three 
that people should keep their covenant promises. And it's because unfaithfulness severely impacts one's ability to worship God properly. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Again, this is a, this is kind of a compare, it is a compare, not kind of comparison. It's a comparison with what the pagans were doing. They were very emotional in their so-called worship. And they believed that if you would cry and be loud and emotional, that somehow the louder you were, the more uh, expressive you were, the more that the gods would hear you and pay attention to you. Now, there's nothing wrong with crying. It's certainly good to mourn over sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. But the pagans were doing it stylistically. They were doing it thinking that the way they went through things would, rather than their heart, looking at their heart. Emotionalism without true repentance misses the boat. Verse, verses 14 to 16 give us the third reason why people are supposed to keep their covenants, especially in marriage. Unfaithfulness in marriage breaks promises made to God and impacts the nuclear family. Now think about what we've said so far. Think about why we, they were called to be faithful and we by extension are be called to faithful first to be faithful as well. First of all, it impacts the whole spiritual family. Second, it impacts your own ability to worship, but it also breaks the promises you made to God and it impacts the nuclear family. If, if we have a society where marriage is not honored, where marriage is not held up, and people go in and out of marriage, in and out of marriage, over and over and over again. If that's, if that is what they're doing, which they were, that there will be no stability in a nuclear family. And that's what he is saying here. Verse 14, you ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, covenants in those days, when you entered a covenant, there were always witnesses. And this one is saying that God is the witness of the biblical. In other words, God is always the witness. He sees every covenant we make. It's like he was there watching this. The wife of your youth. Marriages in those days were often arranged, often even before birth. So it wasn't like they were necessarily going to get to choose, oh, this is the person I want to spend my life with. But families arranged marriages, and and the prophet is saying, um, God is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, it's interesting that in a culture like theirs, that where women were decisively considered to be inferior to men, God calls wives your partner. 
He stresses the equality of personhood uh, between husband and wife. That, that's interesting way back in the Old Testament. Verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So God creates marriage, a man and a woman. This is God's design. A man and a woman come together and become one. And when they do that, there's a there's a physical oneness, there's an emotional oneness, there's a spiritual oneness, and there's a purpose in it. It's to be one with God and one with each other, but it's also to raise godly offspring. Now, our society says it used to be many, many, many years ago. It was like people were like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should, you know, we don't have a perfect marriage, but we'll stay together for the sake of the kids. And that that's kind of gone out the window. And the, the, the emphasis now is, hey, don't allow your own personal desires to be impacted by just keep staying together for the sake of the kids. And yet, what does God say here? Love your spouse. Submit to your spouse. Be one with your spouse. And out of that union, seek to raise those children in godly ways so that godly offspring come out of it. Attitudes towards marriage have drastically changed in our country. I mean, it's just unbelievable what the world in general thinks about marriage. This is an, I'm about to put up an actual billboard, a picture of a billboard. It's a little grainy, but it's, because it, it was an actual billboard and this is the best picture of it. I, I'm not giving the whole billboard because some of it is not appropriate. Um, but about 15 years ago, this was a, in Chicago, this, this was a firm, life short, get a divorce. And that's what they were promoting. Fortunately, um, the city alderman had the billboard taken down about a, a week later, citing some legal technicalities about that they hadn't fired, filed the proper paperwork. But somewhat indicative of a, a kind of a cavalier view towards marriage. Verse 16, the man who... Hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now I want you to look at that verse and I want you to notice what it is that God hates. You see it? He hates divorce. He does not hate the divorced person. He does not hate those who have experienced the pain and the heartache of divorce. God has made married people one, and he knows when there is separation, God knows how much pain and hurt that brings. That's why he hates divorce. 
The goal today, and I know sitting here in this room and watching online, I know there are people of all sorts of life situations who will be hearing this message and who are hearing it. Some of you, you're not even dating yet (laughs) and you don't even care. And some of you are single and some of you are married for the first time and some of you are not married for the first time and some of you have experienced the pain of divorce. And the goal today is not to make any person who has been divorced feel bad. You already feel and know that pain. And I would say in this sense, God is on your side. God is trying to protect you and God is trying to protect all of us from going through that type of pain. In almost no instance can you go back and change the pain and the hurt and the broken relationships from the past. But here's what you can do today. You can start today. You can embrace God and his ways and his truth and his grace today, and you can start putting his principles in practice today. Amen? One other qualification. This verse is also not an absolute statement about divorce and marriage. There are a couple of instances in the New Testament where there are exceptions to this. This also, a verse like this, shouldn't be used, for instance, to say that a woman who is being abused must stay in a relationship or in a home. What? So you can't, you can't say everything. <laughs> but what we can do is say, look, God wants us, we make covenants to each other. And we make commitments to each other. We make promises to each other. Let's honor those. Speech number four is be faithful by practicing Justice. The prophets over and over have named all sorts of injustices that were happening in their society. And so now he lists a few of these. In fact, he says, again, these are things we've seen over and over and over. Um, so I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Speech number five in chapter three, verses six to twelve, is be faithful by giving tithes and offerings to God. Now, Before I talk about this section here, and we're going to park here for a little bit. This is the second one that we're going to park at. I I want to make a qualification. If you are listening to this and you are not a Christian, we do not want your money. Sometimes people think that. Sometimes people who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ think, oh, they only want me. They're only interested in me so I can give money. And we've all seen like the TV evangelists beg people and plead people and cajole with people and manipulate people and promise this and that and all this kind of stuff. We don't want your money. We want you to experience God's amazing grace, which is free. So if you're not a Christian, 
you get you have permission just to you know not listen here for a few minutes. We are not trying to raise money in this moment. We're trying to be faithful to the scripture. And God says a lot about giving. And in Malachi, he, 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 this is one of his major speeches. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at generous giving and we're gonna see three blessings. There are three blessings here that result from generous giving to God. The first one is nearness to God. If you give generously, you will be close to God. God says in chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? We're, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. How, how should you return to me? In other words, God is saying, you aren't close to me. <laughs> And there were many, many ways they weren't close to, to God. But one of them, because they were not giving the tithes and offering that they were commanded to give. Failure to bring tithes and offering is just symptomatic. It's symptomatic of a heart that is not willing to follow God and follow his ways. So, well, how is that robbery? I mean, how can you physically rob God. Well, Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it upon the water. God owns all the wealth in the world. Every single thing, every hard and soft income (laughs) Or equity. God is the true owner. We just handle it temporarily. We just manage it for the few years of our fleeting life. That's what being a a steward is, a manager is. God is the owner and he says, okay, I'm going to give you certain things to manage. And that's what money is. He commanded Israel... To give one-tenth of their possessions so that they would recognize that God owns everything. It's a way for them to think, uh, lest they think, oh, well, all this that's come to me, I've got it. It's mine. No, this was, this was a fundamental way of understanding life. God owns everything, and everything that I say I own is really his, but I'm the manager of it. I'm the steward of it. So it belongs to God. And so if I take something that belongs to someone else, I'm a robber, right? And that's what God is saying here. If you are not, he's saying to those people, if you are not giving tithes and offerings, you're robbing God. God owns that and you're taking it. But on the other hand, here's the wonderful thing about obeying this command 
or any command of Scripture. When we obey the command of Scripture, we're close to God. He says, return to me and what? I will return to you. So that's the first blessing. The first blessing of giving generously is nearness to God. The second blessing is participating in God's great purpose. Look at verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Well, what was the storehouse? The storehouse was the temple. That was the place they came to do their worship. Tithing was not voluntary in the Old Testament. Every person gave 10% of their income to support the work of the temple. You had priests, you had the the Levites. They didn't work outside jobs. They had to be supported by it. You had the cost of offering the sacrifices and so forth. You had the temple singers and the servants. You had the needed supplies. So they all, God's plan was, okay, everybody will give 10% and that will support the work of worship. Now, the, the Levites were about one-twelfth of the nation's population, so it would have taken 8.3% of the GNP in Israel to support the, support the work. You can see if you take that plus all of the expenses of actually doing these things, you, you can see why God would say, okay, everybody gives 10%. It's, it's, it's very practical. So it's theological. It demonstrates God's ownership of everything, but it's, it's very practical. This is the way that we can have worship in the Old Testament. Everybody gives a tithe. Now, in that day, they were being selfish. They're like, we we don't want to do that. And so they didn't do it. And God says, you're, you're robbing me. I want you to come back to me. I want you to give. I want, I want you to follow this principle. And it, this applies to us today. I'm going I'm to talk to you about how tithing is different now in a minute. But the principle of participating in God's great purpose applies today. God has a great purpose for this church. And God is doing great things through this church and his whole church all over the world. But if you're a part of a local church and you're committed to that local church, when you give to God through that local church, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're joining in in what God is doing. In the Old Testament, not everybody could be a Levite, not everybody could do that, but they could all tithe and they could give their part of it. And so practically, we have a mortgage to pay here, we have bills, we have utilities, We support missionaries. We send 18% of the money that comes in to places like Peru and Nigeria and Honduras and Serbia. So it's, in other words, when you give, it, it actually is a way that you participate in what God is doing. I, I can't tell you details. I'm, sometime I want to show, maybe at a prayer service, we can't do it on the internet, um, recently one of our missionaries that's working with people from some uh, closed countries showed us some video of Muslims being baptized to become followers of Jesus. And it was just amazing to, to see that. 
people give and support that work, and that's what happens. The third blessing of generous giving is overwhelming biblical prosperity. You notice that's in all caps, and that's for a reason, because there's a lot of talk with the prosperity gospel movement about prosperity, and it's, there's nothing biblical about what, they're, what they typically say. Let's, what does this mean? Well, let's look at it. Continuing in verse 10 there. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not be room enough to store it. You know, it's not uncommon for God to invite people to test him. This is not testing God. This is not people initiating the test like, well, I'm just going to put God on trial. No, this is God himself saying, okay, I, I want you to test me in that. So, for instance, like in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. It, that's not uncommon. God is the one doing the inviting. And what does he promise? I'll throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will be not enough room to store it. They were in, a, in an agrarian society. They had crops and animals. And what they needed for those crops and animals to survive and thrive was rain. And that's what it means about opening the floodgates. That's opening the floodgates of rain so that these crops can thrive and they can bring things to the temple and the storehouses will be full. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and crop diseases. If they obeyed, God would have prevented these disasters from happening. That was another potential problem that they had. Look what happens in verse 12. Here's another thing that would happen. When they did this, the other nations around them would see it. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So a delightful land is one that has not only material blessing, but God's blessing, God's favor, God's hand on it. Now, notice I said biblical prosperity. This is very different than, you know, the person who gets up and says, look, if you write a check to our ministry, I'm, you're going to ha- have all the health and wealth you want, right? Um, we did a little video a few years ago, a joke, and we called it a magic miracle cloth. You know, people, it's just crazy some of the things that, you know, are, are taught and people fall for. Why is this, what's the difference between that kind of false statement about prosperity and true biblical prosperity? First of all, this is for God's people as a whole. This is not for individuals. God is not saying, here's how all of you are going to get rich. No, this is, this is the whole nation is going to be blessed in worship. Secondly, the blessing is designed to enjoy and to bless others, not to consume it selfishly. That's why God wanted to bless them so that there could be worship. Now, what about giving in the New Testament era now? They were commanded to give tithes and offerings. What about us today? Here's the interesting thing. If you read the New Testament, you will not find a command to tithe. There's there's not a command to tithe. This is an Old Testament principle. So how do you determine how much to give? 
How do you make that decision? Do you, do you go back to an Old Testament principle? What we tend to teach in biblical interpretation is if it's commanded in the Old Testament, it needs to be reiterated in the New Testament. Like you take the Ten Commandments, all but one of them are restated, reapplied, and reiterated in the New Testament, all but the Sabbath day. That's why we don't worship on Saturday. Well, what about tithing? What about giving? Well, I want you to think about a couple more things. I thank you for your patience in here because we're, we're, we're going somewhere with this. Malachi 3 is speaking of a tithe that would support the priest and the work of the temple. But there are two other tithes mentioned in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 12, there's the festival tithe. And then in Deuteronomy 14, every three years, there's the poor tithe that you were to give to support people that were poor and in need. So that would average about 3% per year. And then there was what we might call mandatory profit sharing, where if you owned a field, you weren't supposed to glean all the way to the very edges. You were supposed to leave some there so that poor people could come. Are you starting to get the idea about how generous God's people in the Old Testament were supposed to be? I don't believe it was 10%. The word tithe means a tenth. But if you take all of these different ties, it's, it's hard to get an exact percent, but it seems like they were being called to give between 13 and 25% of their income to the Lord. And some of you were glad a few minutes ago when I said there's no New Testament command to tithe. Well, what does the New Testament say? We don't have time to mention all, but I, I do want to... Th- Look at one passage briefly, that's 2 Corinthians. Uh, maybe we're not, I'm going to read it then. We're not going to look at it. I thought I'd put it in here. 2 Corinthians 6 or 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the Macedonian Christians who were poor themselves. They were struggling themselves and they gave so generously. And Paul was encouraging them to finish the, the Corinthians, to finish the gift for the poor like the other Macedonians had had started. And he said in verse 6 and 7, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see the principle? It's cheerful giving. It's what you decide. It's being liberal about it. It's not under compulsion. Now, I really don't want you to get stuck on 10% either way. So, for instance, let's say you're giving 6 or 7% of your income right now, but you're doing it out of a motive, a heart for God, and you're trying to grow in it. You're trying to give more and more to God. I don't think you should feel guilty in any way, but some of you might have been giving 10% for years and years and years, and you've just never even thought or challenged yourself, can I give more? Can I invest more of my money More of the resource, I say, see, I made the mistake. I called it my money. We all say, this is my car, my house, my money. And it's God's. He's just allowing us to manage it. And the question is, 
If in the Old Testament they had to give at least 10%, probably 13%, up to 25%, if that was under law, now that we're under grace and Jesus has come and filled us with forgiveness and everything we have that some of those things the Old Testament people didn't have, don't we want to do more? Don't we want to just have pour out to God and and figure out what can I do for the Lord? That that's the idea of giving. That's why we don't stand up and say, "Well, as I'm not criticizing criticizing anybody does, but sometimes churches say, "All right, time to tithe, time to tithe, time to tithe." I'm like, give generously to the Lord. Don't be hung up on it if you're on this side of it, but keep growing. And if you are at that spot. Don't get hung up and just kind of, okay, I've checked that box off. Even if if you're at 10%, just what if you went to 11%, what if you 1% this next year? And then the next year you went to 12 and the next year, if you're 30 years old, somebody help me with math, by the time you're 50, you're going to be at 30%. And you're going to get joy out of giving to God's work. I think that's what, I think that's what God is wanting us to understand. Now, what about the blessing? Uh, the next verses in 2 Corinthians, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be, verse 11, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So, you've got to have the right motive. You can't say, it's like, I'm going to barter with God here, I'm going to... Give just to get something back. But basically what Paul was saying is, look, if if you give out of your heart and you give generously to God, you know what? God is going to, he's going to keep giving back to you so that then you can distribute that. And you can distribute that. And you can distribute that. Does does that make sense? Does that principle, do you understand what God is is saying there? This This is God's view of giving. And the people in Malachi's day weren't faithful. Let's be faithful. And the last speech, number six, is to fear and honor God's name. There's a little story about not honoring God and not honoring his name. And so verse 16 tells a little story about those who feared the Lord, talked to the Lord, and he heard them. And they created this scroll of remembrance. And verse 17, um, uh, the Lord listened and heard, heard that, and he honored his name. In verse 17, uh, oh, there's Second Corinthians. It just jumped out of the wrong spot. Sorry. <laughs> uh, On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, 
And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Again, this is a theme we have seen over and over and over in the minor prophets. This day of the Lord, this final day of judgment, if you are not a follower of God, it's going to be a terrible day of destruction and judgment. If you are a follower of God, it is going to be a day of joy. And God is going to look at his special treasured possession and he is going to honor them. And he's going to, there's going to be joy and the son of righteousness is going to come with healing in his race. Three verses left in this book. And it's interesting as Malachi closes. Because it's no longer a speech. We've had the six speeches. Boom, 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 boom. And now... It's like at the end, it's, it's like a little summary. I don't, I don't think it's just a summary of Malachi. I think it sums up and captures all of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, I think in some ways it sums up the whole Old Testament. Because it's going to talk about Moses. It's going to talk about the prophet, Elijah the prophets. And there are just three divisions of the Old Testament, law, prophets, and writings. But notice what he says, and and here is the summary. If you had to put it in, in just a few simple words, obey God's word and his messengers. Obey God's word and his messengers. Malachi talked about obeying God's word in all of these different areas. He named a bunch of them in these six speeches. Look at this closing appendix. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you that before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. The hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land. With total destruction. God sent prophets to give people advanced warnings so they could turn from their sin, so they could be forgiven, so they could be spared God's judgment. That is what John the Baptist did as he became the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus. So here's Malachi. We've heard all of these prophets. God is speaking, speaking, speaking. Then there's a period of 400 years before we get to Matthew 1, 1, it's like God is silent. And God is going to send someone, a new Elijah, right? And Jesus said that about John the Baptist. Who is this? Who is this John the Baptist? Well, if you believe, this is Elijah that was to come. So he is the forerunner of the Messiah, He is the one that is sent. And I want to just wrap it up with this. I want to wrap up the whole series with this right here. We've talked today a lot about unfaithfulness. That's that's just the way 
It's written in Malachi. I personally, honestly, would rather talk about faithfulness. <laughs> but he's, you, you've been unfaithful, you know, in your relationships with each other, in your worship, you've been unfaithful, in your marriages, you've been unfaithful, in your giving, your tithes and offering, you've been unfaithful, in justice, you've been unfaithful. There's just been so much unfaithfulness. And, you know, that was then. And what about now? Is there anybody sitting in here today or listening online that's been unfaithful to God? Can you identify with the people of Malachi's day at all? I I can. And I'm glad Malachi ends the way it does by pointing forward to a Savior. <laughs> because all of us, apart from God, have no hope. We're all going to be unfaithful. We've all blown it. We've all sinned. We've all done wrong. This is the gospel, right? And God, in his grace and mercy, said, you know what? I am going to pay the price for their sins. I am going to send my son, Jesus, who lived the life of faithfulness that they couldn't live. And he was perfect. And yet he said he not only lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, he died a death that we couldn't die. He took our sins on himself. Paul said that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is the good news today. Though we are unfaithful, let's look forward to that Savior who can save us. And that is the grace of God. And so it's not, the call is not to go out and feel bad about yourself or your mistakes or your sins or where you have been. It's to be honest before God and confess if needed, but it's also to say, you know what, what we're celebrating at Christmas time is the coming of the Savior. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.